You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Another thing we do this summer is a series in the Psalms, which you'll hear more about from Tuck. We will begin with Psalm 65 this Sunday, and each week go forward another Psalm. Psalm 65 starts on page 480, 480 of your Pew Bibles. And as always, you are welcome to take one of these home with you as our gift if you do not have a Bible of your own. Psalm 65. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. The word of the Lord. All rise, reading of the gospel. The holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. This morning's reading is from John chapter 4, verses 4 through 26, found on page 888 in your few Bibles. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. 
for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gives us the well, or he gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. And the one you now have well, is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Be seated, please. Let's, uh, let's take a moment and pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these words of the psalmist and these words of John, the gospel writer, would you help us to know how we might apply them to our lives, how we might embody them in our own practices as your people. Be with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, as I said earlier, I'm Tuck Bartholomew, and I'm really glad to be here this summer with you guys. Uh, we have loved worshiping with Redeemer, so it's just a delight to, to be here. And now, will I be saying that at the end of the summer? I have no idea. My little trek from Charlottesville. But I think I will be, because I so enjoy the worship here. Um, so this summer, we're back, uh, we're back in the Psalms. And we're looking at these ancient prayers that God's people throughout time have taken to their lips as a way of just giving expression to the life that they have with God, right? These prayers have helped God's people talk to him, think about him, uh, and so order their own lives. Now, they're, they're 
prayers, not like the kind of prayers you and I typically pray, most likely, unless we're just in the habit of routinely reading through the Psalms, which many of us are actually in that habit, but not everyone. And uh, one of the things you discover in these prayers is that while they may have given rise or they were birthed in some particular moment of history, something was going on in the life of the writer that led them to write these particular prayers. But very often, much of the detail has sort of dropped aside, it's poetry. And the benefit of that to us is that we get, we sort of get caught up in the spirit of the Psalm, right? The spirit of these words, and we actually find ways that they fit into our own stories, our own lives, our own experiences. Now, this morning, we're back in uh, the Psalm that you left off with last, last year, uh, Psalm 65. And some think that this particular Psalm was a Psalm that would have been sung during harvest time. You get the metaphors that are running through this Psalm, right? The God's faithful provision of, of resources, of food, the, the furrows, right? The, the wagon wheels sort of riding through the furrows and things like this. And this is a Psalm that in an agrarian society you would just hit pause in a moment of harvest and you would remember that the benefit and the goodness that you're experiencing isn't simply from your own hands. God has been merciful. And so you just take a moment and you come back to the story of God's faithfulness and you say thank you. And this Psalm leads us to do something like that. Eugene Peterson thus says of the Psalms, right, that they are a toolkit, they are tools for us. Not that we're like building something with the way we might take a hammer and a nail or a saw or something, but rather they're building into us a way of being with God. So that we, in this case, are people that pause and say thank you. We recognize God's presence and activity in our lives. Now, we're not an agrarian society. I get that. Um, some of you may be a little closer to that than others. Most of us really, you know, we don't take a lot of notice of where our food comes from. Uh, for example, right? Maybe you go to one of those fancy farm-to-table restaurants. I, I do occasionally. And you notice right there under the beef, Timber Creek Farms. And you're like, oh, this beef came from a special place, and we're told about that. But that's not the normal space that you and I inhabit. But you do experience blessing, and you do experience God's faithfulness to you in a variety of ways. So, right, kids, it's the end of the school year. And so maybe it was a grand school year, and maybe it was one you're just really glad to be over, but you can give thanks. Because why? It's over. You're in the summer, and so it's a moment of harvest in a sense, a harvest of play, a harvest of going to swim teams or going on vacation and all the kinds of things that we do during this season of life. For the Murata family, it's a season of harvest too, of sabbatical, right, space, because Redeemer Church has sort of existed for seven years, and this is a moment when pastors very often take a break, they sort of hit pause and they, they go on sabbatical and they try to find refreshment and fruitfulness in their lives and that's what's happening this summer for you as a congregation and you, the Maradas. So here we are in this particular psalm meant to be calling to mind some experience of God's goodness, some way in which you're experiencing his plenty. Verse one opens, addressing God very directly and simply says that praise is due his name. So we gather to this God that praise is due his name and we gather to perform our vows. Now, you, you know, most of us will read that and you think we don't walk through ordinary life saying, let's go perform our vows. 
What does that mean? How can we unpack that? Well, in relationships, when we vow ourselves, whether it's the vow that one might take in marriage or it's a commitment that you take it, like I did at ordination or any other space in life where you're committing yourself to a certain vocation or you're committing yourself to some habit of being or place of being, what a vow does is it's, it's a promise. And in this case, it's a promise about the way we'll relate to our God. We're meant to sort of enact and habituate this relationship with God. So it's not just something that happens on Sunday when we gather, though we do that in very poignant ways, but it's meant to sort of go with us throughout the week that we're a community of people who hear that God is a God who wants to talk to us. And so we're people that keep talking back to God. We actually enter the conversation, the back and forth nature of conversation, and that's exactly what this particular psalm has in mind for us as we kick off, as we begin, that we would be a community of people that are deeply formed and shaped by a real life of deep connectedness to the God who loves us. That's what's in mind here as the psalmist begins off and urges us to perform our vows. There's a little twist at verse two, you may have noticed it, that all of a sudden it's not just people you would expect to sort of live a vowed life with God or to enact a life with God, Israel in this case, right? Or we could pull this toward ourselves and say, the church, Christians, those that have professed some faith in Jesus, but there's a sense in which all the people of the earth come into view in this Psalm. Did you notice it? That God is a God who hears prayer and so all flesh will come to you, all flesh. Not just our flesh, not just our bodies that are here gathered this morning, but there's a sense in which whenever the church gathers for worship, God has in view the entirety of the earth. It's a really beautiful thought if you hit pause on that for a moment, you think about that. And it's also a very important reminder because one of the things that we know about life in our particular cultural moment is that it's deeply divided and polarized. There are many neighbors that we actually would prefer to forget about. But what this Psalm teaches us is that God doesn't forget about them. Whoever the enemy may be, whoever the polarized individual may be, whether they're close up to you or farther away, God has in mind the entirety of the earth. And so when we gather for worship, we are meant to bear the needs and the burdens of the world itself into our conversation with God. We'll do that in just a few moments when we get to the prayers of the people, right? Because we'll say things that we as a congregation or you as individuals are particularly conscious about, right? We're gonna say ordinary things that relate very deeply to the body of Christ and the ways in which we might be struggling. But there's also an occasion when we think about the peace of the whole earth, not just our experience of it. We want the war in Ukraine to stop, for example, or when we think closer at home to the things going on in our own neighborhoods or even in our own families or in our nation, we would love to be a place where racism is ended. We would love to be a place where there's less inequality tomorrow than there is today. We'd love to be a place where there is a sense of abundance for all and all begin to flourish in a life with God. We love the blessings of God to overflow everywhere. And that's exactly what we mean when we pray for his kingdom to come. Now, why would we perform 
this act of vow keeping to God, this enacting our life with God, right? Taking up a conversation with him that's real and robust and not just like lighthearted, but descends to the depth of who we are as persons. The psalmist gives us two reasons. And you notice them in this psalm because he speaks on the one hand of redemption and on the other of creation. So let's think about those two things. Creation, if God is real, then simply by virtue of creation, of course we owe God some type of honor, right? That, that's, a, that's like a, a logical given, we could say. But one of the things that you and I know is that when we play the God is the creator card, right? Uh, that it doesn't often play well with people. Have you ever noticed that? So just think about your own life as a person that grew up in a family. If your mom and dad ever played the you must obey me because I'm your parent, which of course is true. You might get some kind of conformity, but your heart wasn't wooed. Your heart wasn't pulled toward your parent in that moment often. And the psalmist here doesn't play the creator card first. He plays the redemption card first. This is where he begins with God's merciful love and desire for connection with you, with me. Notice verse three. The psalmist simply says, when my iniquities prevailed against me, you atone for our transgression. Or the NIV puts it this way, and I really love some of the language in the NIV translation here. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. I love the language of being overwhelmed because I think what the psalmist has in mind is a moment of stuckness when you and I feel like we have nowhere to go, right? And that's the same language of when our iniquities prevailed. In other words, they're winning and they're happening over and over and over again. But here the psalmist just invites us to remember that the life of sin is an overwhelming life. And we experience that in our world in a variety of ways. I really love the way the Lutheran theologian Robert Jensen defines sin. He says this a little bit whimsically. He said, sin is anything that disrupts the wholeness of our community. Our community life with God, in other words, the depth of our connectedness to God, but also the depth of our connectedness one to another. Inside of our families, inside of the workplace, inside of our neighborhoods, inside of a nation. Sin is anything that disrupts community, disrupts that connection. And when you begin to think about sin that way, right, it's that which ruptures wholeness, tears it apart. And whenever you and I are aware of that in our own lives, right, what happens? You feel overwhelmed. We have places in our lives where we can readily admit, in just a few moments, by the way, we'll come to the confession of sin, and we're gonna say this line, that we've done those things that we ought not to have done, and we have left undone those things which we ought to have done. In other words, in that prayer that we pray week after week after week after week, we're saying, I do things that are harmful and injurious to other people and to God. I disrupt the relationship. And it's not just because I've done something, quote, wrong, that's hurtful in an obvious way. It's also the other. I've been negligent. I've not done good things that are in my power to do. I've left undone some things that might have contributed to wholeness. 
And that's the imagination of the psalmist, that we're overwhelmed by these realities. Have you ever felt that in your own life? When you're just stuck and you don't know how to get out of that rut, there's a sense of just feeling utterly lost and disconnected, as if the, ordin the way of life that you're experiencing that is broken is just gonna go on and on and on, and tomorrow will be another same day. The psalmist says, when God looks on people like that, who feel stuck in the rut of sin, that God's response is a response of atonement and forgiveness. There are lots of theological ways that we could sort of try to explain and unpack the meaning of atonement. What does it mean that God covers or atones for our sins? But the ordinary Israelite that would be praying this prayer in the particular moment would almost certainly hear that word and their minds would flash to all of the activity that happens in the temple worship of God where sacrifices are offered and atonement is made and they would understand that what the psalmist is asking them to remember is just something very simple about God, that God always shows up in kindness and mercy to lift our burden to take that overwhelming sense of sin off of our backs. God takes the burden of sin off of them, and not only that, God welcomes them back into his house, back into his presence, back into the intimacy of his home, so that there we would be reoriented to a new way of living in the world. And we would recognize that the presence of God enables us to live differently inside of a world that values things that are very different from the things that God values. I was thinking about that just a moment ago when we were singing that we don't wanna be persons that covet. The world orders our life in a way that we're naturally drawn to want what other people have or to want more than we do have. But what God wants us to begin with so that we can live with plenty and we can live with one is that his presence is with us in a gracious way through whatever circumstance we're walking through. And the moment you begin to understand that God looks toward you in an act of mercy and love and forgiveness, what happens to your heart? You're sort of drawn because if God is a God who takes all of his creative power and he leverages it toward you for your sake, what do you want? More of it. I wanna get closer to this God. I wanna taste that love and that kindness and that mercy more and more. In fact, I want a world like that to prevail. I'd like to be overwhelmed by a world like that. Can you imagine that? That you would ever feel the need to say to God, stop, it's too much. But that's the image that the poet conjures up for us to imagine. That's how God relates to us. And he wants us, the eyes of our heart, to be open to that deep reality of how he relates to us. All right, so true confession, I'm a Ted Lasso fan. If you don't like the language of New York, don't watch that, that show. You know what I mean. And for those of you who don't know Ted Lasso, this is a, a show, rather, a TV series that aired in Apple during COVID. And what's COVID? It's a moment when early on, do you remember the stuckness you felt? Do you remember the despair, the curiosity? Like, and it's not happy curiosity. I wanna know more about COVID. It's what's gonna happen in COVID. 
What's the danger that's gonna come to me during COVID? And if those of you turned on the TV set and you started to watch Ted Lasso, someone told us to do that and we did. And we started to watch it and you're like, okay, this looks a little bit like you know, Disney for adults. It's kind, of, it's kind of weird. It's a little bit cheesy in places. He's a goofy guy, an American football coach who sort of lands in a, a job that's meant to do, actually to fail in England, right? Doing British football, soccer, and he knows nothing about it. But he's a really kind man. He's always interacting with people with the best in mind for them, that he somehow sees things about them that they desperately need. It's a beautiful show and it lifted many hearts. I love Tish Harrison Warren. Tish, right, is an uh, Anglican priest, by the way, a writer in our tradition. And she wrote an op-ed in the New York Times a number of weeks back in which she's referred to Ted Lasso as a holy fool. Now, a holy fool comes to us from classical literature, and we understand in this space that a holy fool is what? Someone who lives above the fray of ordinary life in such a way that we develop an imagination for a different way of being human. And that's exactly what happens in this particular show. He says silly, ridiculous thing. He teaches the art of forgiveness. And so when ruptures happen in relationships as difficult and painful of them as, he continues to push the players toward acts of forgiveness, that they would become better versions of themselves. And they seem to change throughout the show. And it's really beautiful to watch people begin to hold power without orienting it towards themselves, but leveraging it towards others. Now look, we love stories like that. Why? Because we live in a world in which power is leveraged selfishly. It's used manipulatively, it's used abusively. We've experienced the hurt of selfishness, right? Harms done towards us, and we've left undone. We've experienced even the wound of things that should have been done toward our lives that did it, that weren't done. Goods that we didn't receive. We live in a world that's just loaded with the overwhelming presence of sin, and we want a different world to prevail, to last, to endure. And the thing about these stories that we latch onto is we find a little bit of hope and it gives us a smile on our face and you think, yeah, that's right. But then what happens next year? You need another story. And what happens in five years? You need another story. And 10 years, you need another story. The history of humanity is a history of always longing for the right thing in some sense. We want a world that's put right, but we keep going back and back to the space of being overwhelmed by the burden of sin. And this is the beauty of the scriptural story. It's real. It's true. There's a depth to it because the God who created us is the God who makes atonement for our sin. The God who is creator and so who is all-powerful is the God who leverages the fullness of his strength toward his people to lift their burden. And there's something so absolutely beautiful about that. But here's what the poet didn't know at the time. They had no idea that this story would land in the person of Jesus in whom God is physically present to our world. Not just spiritually present, but tangibly present to our world in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus gets literally beneath our sin. He swallows up the overwhelming effects of sin in our world and in our lives, in his own death and his resurrection and in his ascension and in his gift of the Holy Spirit. He fills our lives with his very presence. Why? So that you and I would be holy fools. So that we live by a different story. That when we're at school or we're in the workplace and people are operating out of selfishness, we would operate out of generosity. So that when we're harmed, we would be people that know how to extend forgiveness in all the right ways. However long that might take us to get there, we would be in that trajectory of love and forgiveness and generosity. So how much more might we today, in light of Jesus, take up this vowed life of praise, right? Ordering our life, our life with God in a robust way so that we live in the world in deep connectedness to the God who loves us. The rest of the psalm leads us in reimagining what this creative energy might look like. God who is operative in creation, but who is also operative in this space of redemption, now recreating the world in the life of Jesus. So in verse six is to eight, for example, six to eight, there's this call that, or reminder, right, that God was able at creation to still the chaos of the seas. But now what is he still? The chaos of the nations, the struggle between powers that be in the world. We can't help but read through our own news feeds or pick up a literal paper if you still do that these days and read the painful stories of the war in Ukraine. And we want it to stop. We know it's damaging. Or we look more closely to home and we see that we live in a world that's still turned, a nation that's still torn by the ravages of the overwhelming nature of sin. Racism's a thing. And we so wish it would end. There are inequalities in our world that we wish would end. We want the hungry to be fed and we rightly desire these things and long for these things. And so each week in our worship, we gather and we ask and we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we also say this important line, deliver us from evil. Because we recognize that however great our strategies are for changing things, they're not enough. They've never been enough. As good as we can be, as, as, good as, we, as, as much good as we can produce, it's never enough. It's never enduring enough. And so what do we need? We need God to show up and change things ultimately to bring us to the fullness of his kingdom. So we pray to him. We look to him, and that's inhabiting the vows of this very prayer. In verses 9 to 11, our hope is anchored in a God who diverts water in a life-giving way. In Israel, it's an arid climate. So you can imagine living in a place that feels like you're in perpetual drought. You need water to live and to make things grow, and you don't have the power to do that consistently. So we pray to God, we look to him. So I'd invite you to just to think about where the arid places in your life, the desert places, the hard spaces. Earlier we were singing that God knows our struggles. What are your struggles this morning? Where are you struggling in this life? 
God sees you. God is able to bring water to even those dry spots in your life. I love this story of Jesus' encounter with the woman in Samaria at the well. It's such a beautiful story and that moment when Jesus looks on her and says, I'm the one that's able to give you living water that can flow from your very being. She saw that as an immediate tangible hope, but by the end of the encounter, she recognizes Jesus means so much more. How do you need to hear him say, I imagine so much more for you? living water flowing from your being. Today, maybe there's some particular place of blessing or harvest that comes immediately to your mind, some good that's right on your mind, but there's the other question, what about this week? What will be the news next week or next month or next year when new creation feels painfully, painfully far away? You see, a Christian is someone who engages the God who engages them. We begin to come back over and over again to the story of God's mercy and to his own merciful self within this long arc of his faithfulness in history. For the Samaritan woman, as Jesus interacts with her, this meant that she had to wake up from the polarizing division that existed between Jews and Samaritans as they argued about true worship. And it meant that she would have to wake up from her own painful experiences, even as a woman in her own community, maybe because of her lifestyle. It would mean that she would wake up to the fact that God knows the injustices that she had likely encountered as a woman that had very little hope in a patriarchal world when divorce happens. It would mean that she would have to see how God was in fact seeking her by his spirit to become one who would worship through Jesus by the spirit of God himself. As Jesus gets beneath her experiences of sin and injustice, atoning and lifting and forgiving, we read the story, if we'd read more of it, we would see that she runs back to the village and she simply has this message. Come see the man who told me everything I ever did. Do you hear the freedom of that? Friends, God sees you. He sees you. Everything you ever did, he sees you. Nothing is hid from his sight. No secret is hidden from his sight. But there's good news in his seeing, and it is simply this, that he sees us with the eyes of mercy and grace. His first words to you are always, I love you, fear not. I love you, fear not. Where do you need to hear that this morning as we've gathered for worship? And where do you need to take that into your ordinary spaces of life in the coming week? May God give us grace to perform the truth of this story in our prayers and our lives this week. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, be with us as we think on these words of scripture. And more than any other thing this morning, we pray that you would help us to know that you meet us in love and that you are with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. 
To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.